Welcome to the Extra Podcast. This is episode number 245. Producing our episode once again is our silent producer, Poochie. Matt Crocker. Matt, Matt. Wheelie, wee, wheelie, wee, wee, whack. To the extreme. <laughs> That's what Poochie does, right? <laughs> That's the worst Poochie I've ever heard. <laughs> That's good. That's a good way. For those of you who wonder what we're talking about when we say Poochie, you need to go to YouTube and you need to Google Simpsons Poochie episode. Yeah. P-O-O-C-H-I-E. Then that guy, that that dog looks exactly like Matt Crocker. Our silent producer. Mm-hmm. Matt, I'd especially like to point out that today there's only three of us and you're still silent producing. That's That's a tough gig. We should have put him at the mic. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, also, at just like Homer was the, robbed of the mic, it's true. so is Poochie. That's right. Uh, Pastor Paul's with us today. Hey, and Pastor Jeff is here also. Wiggly, wiggly, wet. <laughs> Greg, you're sounding extra sultry today. Well, I'm hosting. You have this crackle to your voice. I was going to say you, I, I, you're trying to reach the dulcet tones, <laughs> but you're not able to get there. <laughs> this is my hosting voice. Welcome to the extra podcast. Easy listening for your theological needs. Nice. Does that work? No, you just have you have a tenor voice. You need I'm, like a Paul, a baritone. I'm a baritone. <laughs> hey guys, it was hey. the Oscars this weekend. Yes. Did you guys wow. watch it? No. I did not watch it. They, apparently, it was the least watched Oscars since nineteen. No, wait, it didn't exactly have good press leaving, leading up to two thousand eight. Well, they were freaking out because there were no African American or a- any kind of actually minority nominees. But I heard that they planned on having a lot of African Americans giving out the awards. Yeah, because that that's visually better. They did that, <laughs> yes, and there were quite a few there. They they went overboard trying to correct the whole thing. Oh man! Right, and then and then because everybody thought it was racist uh, against African Americans, then Chris Rock made a joke about Asians yeah. instead because that's better. I know, and there were so many Asians who were who were who were nominated too. Yeah, it's funny. It was just all white people who were nominated, yeah. which is, I mean, if you look think about the movies, it's all white. It's all rich white people for the most part. So that was the critique. Although isn't Hollywood getting to the point now where it's the l- most legalistic? What do you mean when you the, watch the movies? It's only rich white people. The, oh, the rich the white people nominated? are the ones who are acting. All the big movies have rich white people in them. There's not. There's very few that don't. Like quite honestly, the guy who played in Creed, Michael B. Jordan, he was great. Hmm. He did a great job. He should have been nominated. There's no question about that. But you know, in Will Smith, I was surprised that he didn't get a nomination hmm. for that. I think though that people, I don't know, he doesn't have quite the name. Do you mean it's people voting? No, the or people the who actors. are acting. They're rich white people. Okay. Well, all the movies. Most of the movies have rich white the people. The man, Greg. The man. Okay. No? You don't think so? No. You just listed the actors two, you just are listed rich white people. Two black lead actors. Right. So how many more how many more are there like them? In it compared to how many rich rich white people are acting. Yeah, fair enough. So I I'm just saying that. Like you, one of the things Chris Rock said during the episode was that there was a time where he was, you know, President Obama showed up and they were at a party, and he, 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 and like there were four other black guys in the room, Hmm. and out of like a thousand people in the room, there's four 
black people in one of the most liberal societies around, right? And that's what I'm saying, that he's right, that there's very few minorities in, in, in that area, very few in the Hollywood kind of... Hollywood's like a high school, you know, it's like the 2,000 totally. or 3,000 people who all know each other and hang out. And it is and like I'm one of the whitest high schools around. So, which is interesting because for so many years, Hollywood has kind of portrayed itself as being, you know, representative of all the good things in the world and, you mm. know, immune. We're, ta- we're solving the world's problems, right? Mm. Which is ironic because it, they're not, they're, they're rich, they're filthier. Louis C.K. stands up and talks about how they're all going to go home wealthy. They are all wealthy, multi, multi millionaires all sitting in the room together. Mm. White millionaires who are decrying businesses and their involvement in the world. <laughs> when they're signing, you know, the reason they have so much money is because of those very businesses, and most of them are in bed with the business. It just, it's all a mess. It's mm. just, a, I struggle with the Academy Awards because of the hypocrisy of so much of what it, it's so moralistic, right? Mm. Everybody gets up and they have to have a new a new thing that they say about you know this is my particular um, agenda. The Earth is too hot. Uh, LGBT <laughs> stuff, mm-hmm. uh, transgender. I think Mad Max became apparently about transgendered movement. This looks like what? I no, it's it's a f- movie about feminism, but it's not about transgendered movement. Like there's the, one of the ladies who won for uh, the Mad Max. Um, she was, I think, the, the, the not costume, but the makeup Original. designer. Okay. Yeah. She stood up and she said, you know, the world could be like this soon. Really? The world's going to be like the Namibian desert soon? So now Mad Max is a movie about uh, climate change. So it, everybody's got their own, their own you know, you know uh, moralistic political thing that they're going to stand up and they're going to espouse for a few minutes. And... I like living in that kind of legalistic society because that's what that is. It's way more legalistic than the most legalistic church I've ever been in. You don't dare do something wrong mm. according to these particular rules, or you'll be an outcast. Yeesh. Just ask Mel Mel Gibson. Mm. Like you can't, you you just can't break the rules, which is why I find it so. I love film, but the people who make them are are so hypocritical. Just like the rest of us, mm. who all need Jesus, mm. and that's the other part. That's I, I. Every time I watch the Academy Awards, I just I want. I, I would love to see Christians be able to infiltrate that and be able to present Christ in a winsome way to to these dear folks, because they desperately need it, right? But they're so insulated from it because they have have all the money and all the success and all the things that our world say is valuable, and they have people surrounding them all the time, talking about how great they are. So if God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, their whole world is about pride, Yeah, right? They're being reaffirmed in their pride every moment of every day. And I just, it's so hard, mm-hmm. so hard. That was a rant. I just realized I just ranted about the Academy Awards. I apologize. <laughs> no, that's kind of what we do here. Oh, yeah. But I, I still enjoyed watching it, although it's interesting how, few more, how, how many people are less and less in- inclined to watch. These days, and I think a lot of it has to do with people getting sick of having their the politics of this this high school in Southern California mm. shoved down their throats. Mm. Poochie, did you watch it? He nodded yes. Nice live. Wow. You no, you, how can you watch it live? Oh, it's interminable. He watched the Grammys too. Lasts so long. You know. 
Pucci is committed to the award shows. He he's also the watched season. The Ring. And the, Gord- and the Golden Globes? <laughs> he's pointing to, oh, he's married. Pucci's married. In the Golden Globes. And his wife wants to watch things like the Grammys and the Oscars, oh, and so he sits it. there, and so he listens and watches, and he plays his Game Boy. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. It's good. See, even my wife doesn't like watching it. Bec- she, she would like to see like the fashions and stuff. Right, because oh, yeah. some of the the dresses are really pretty and all that, but even that, she's like, mm. whatever. Wouldn't you like to go someday, though? I would to the Oscars. Yeah, man. As a seat filler, I don't care. As a rich white guy, yeah. Well, I'm not going to be a rich white guy. But I'm going to be a white guy, <laughs> but I'm not going to be rich. So, like, I'm a white guy. So that what well, I'm already eighty percent there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you could be pastor to the stars. Oh, are you happy that the spotlight won? Sur- I didn't see. I- surprise, surprise. <laughs> a, a movie uh, praising journalists was voted by journalists to be the best movie. <laughs> wow. You're a little cynical about that. Little- oh, hey, the year before, a movie about the movie industry was voted by the movie industry to be the best movie. Which was that? Birdman. The Birdman. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's always no, it's funny good. to me whenever there's a movie about the the people who are voting, praising them. They're like, oh, yeah, that's the best one. Easily. See, The Birdman... Brooklyn was the best movie last yeah. year. This is why the People's Choice Awards is probably better. Right. Because the po- people get to choose. But then it's just the popularity. What about contest. the Teen Choice? That's better because you get, like, goo thrown on people. Is that really true? Yeah. yeah like, there's goo every of... year, right? You watch the Teen Choice. Yeah, po- Poochie po- watches. Poochie said, yes, there's goo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow, you really are into the award seasons, Poochie. I love it. You get a surfboard, I think. That's your... <laughs> you, do, you do get a surfboard from the Teen Choice Awards. Yeah. That's right. Just like Poochie. Just like Poochie. Hey, uh, we have a few questions that people sent in. Good. Which is a good thing. Just a few. But before we get to those, we wanted to add our own because there was a, we've had a, bun- a few emails sent after the sermon this past weekend from Psalm 15. Mm. Uh, we had our baptism services. So if you were at in the worship center at 9 and 11, you would have not seen Jeff's sermon. But if you were in Center Court or West Court or Saturday Night Worship Center, you would have seen his sermon. But you can watch it online, either way. Uh, one of the questions that, Jeff, you had a few times over email and in person was to do with the verse 2 in Psalm 15 says that he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, um, it's talking about th- those kinds of people who Yeah, who can dwell with the Lord, God, no, right? who can dwell with the Lord uh, or as the last verse says, who can stand with him forever. Is that the way it reads, Paul? Yep. Shall never be moved. Shall never be moved. Yeah. yeah. So people brought up to you the cases of people like Rahab or right. uh, the Hebrew midwives who were lying well, the- and all kinds of other scenarios where people who are not being truthful are actually being commended by God right. in the scriptures. And yet here you have people being... Right. Commended for always being truthful. So that's the question is, so, so in, in real terms today, uh, you have missionaries who smuggle Bibles into closed countries uh, or who might set up a business in a foreign country that's closed to God's Word. And so, although I would say the second of those like, is not necessarily lying because they are setting up a, a business there, but their goal might be, might be proclamation of the Scriptures. So the smuggling one is a real one. Here you are, you're going through the border, and they say, do you have anything with you? And you say, no. 
So I told a story about how I went through the border and had some Tylenol ones with me and had to, I told the truth about it, which was good because apparently I'm a drug mule now stuff like anyway, but I told this story and asked the question, like, do you lie at the border? And the reason I said that is because it's, it, it's so commonplace and one of those kind of, I don't know, Jerry Bridges calls it, calls it a, a respectable sin, right? That they're big lies. You don't tell big lies, right? You don't, you don't do that kind of thing, but you tell the, the little lies like going through the border and whether you have something with you is something that we would kind of give an excuse to. So the question that was being raised by actually a couple different people was, all right, but aren't there, like, it, do we always have to speak honestly? Do we always have to tell the truth? Because in the Bible, you've got places where people don't tell the truth. Hmm. So how does that work with our ethics? How does that work with our understanding of, of that sort of thing? Right. So is, is lying always a sin? It's so, every form, or or when when we're talking about what Rahab did, was that was that actually what did Rahab do? For those of us who we should talk about both as examples, because in the Bible, the two main examples that are given are Rahab when she houses the spies mm-hmm. and and then lies about their presence with her to the authorities in the city of Jericho, and then there's the situation with the Hebrew midwives who are told by the Pharaoh to kill all the newborn um, male um, children, and as as a means of basically of you know thinning out the Hebrew population, and they don't do it, hmm. right? Right? They they refuse to do it, but then lie to him saying, "Hey, no, they're just really the women give birth faster than we can get there," which is not true, right? So they're commended for their faithfulness. Both Rahab and the Hebrew midwives are commended for their faithfulness. So here they're liars, commended for their faithfulness. And yet the Bible in Psalm 15 says you should speak honestly. So, and those who dwell with God. So in, in, in Rahab's lies, what was she doing? She was protecting right. people. She was protecting lives. Right. Of- so there was the way of God. Yeah. In Rahab's situation, there was the way of God and what the Lord wanted and she aligns herself with what the Lord wants over against what her society wants. Right. Likewise, in the Hebrew midwives situation, you have the way of the Lord, who the Hebrew midwives align themselves with over against a, a, a society that is against the Lord. So I think we could say that, that we tell the truth we are truth tellers because God is a God of truth, and that is the major major uh, note in the scriptures. But there is this minor note in the scriptures that says there is a law that exists above the laws of our land, and the law of God supersedes the law of our land in every place. So if the law of our land is asking us to do something that is a breakage of God's law, then we have a responsibility, I would think, not just an option, but a responsibility to act in line with God's law as opposed to the law of the land. So this applies mm. to. I mean, you guys pick out some so, people from the history. Well, of the if we think of uh, if we think of the hiding place with Corey Tinboom and her family hiding Jews, right? Like they build this they build this uh, fake wall in a bedroom and they hide Jews behind it when the Nazis come and look, and the Nazis come like. They're looking, and they're looking, are you hiding anybody here? No, no, we're not hiding anybody. But they were doing good because they were protecting lives from a, from a wicked right. uh, regime that was coming to actually exterminate 
in would have been their words of a certain uh, group of people, and so and that completely goes against who God is and what God wants us to do. So so Corey Tenboom and the whole Tenboom family were actually following God's law by mm. and should by be commi- protecting and should those be commended people. for that. Yes. Likewise, the civil rights movement of the 1960s with Martin Luther King Jr. Leading, leading it. I mean, you could make criticisms about MLK in lots of other areas, but in the in the guts of what he was trying to argue there, when he writes his letters to the, from the Birmingham jail, that's this is his argument. In the end, we look. There is a law that exists above the law. So when we when we don't obey the segregation laws, or we when we don't obey the the laws that say that we are less than human. Mm-hmm. Um, we are actually walking in line with a law that supersedes the law of the land, and that is the law of God. Likewise, the Nuremberg trials at the end of uh, at the end of World War II. The reason that the because so, the argument was among the Nazis, we were following orders, like we were supposed to. What you, I, so I'm I'm working in a in a prison camp or an extermination camp, and. I'm not supposed to follow the orders of the boss. And what they were doing under German law was legal. Right. Not only legal, it was a command from the authorities at right. the time. The final solution was a command from the authorities. And and it was if if you're working if you're in the military, you're being commanded to go and to do this particular act. And so the Nuremberg trial came along and that was the chief defense of the Nazis who were on trial there. We were following orders. How can you tell us that for us to follow our culture for us to follow our national law was wrong when you guys are following your national law and it's and it's right and the argument of the of the prosecutors and and ultimately the judges there was that there's a law that exists above the law right which is funny too because now we've eliminated that law mm. so when you get into the gay marriage debates this is the same argument that people were making that no we were not going to say gay marriage is right in the states or Canada or whatever because there is a law that exists above above the law. So even though you guys are saying, oh, no, this is right, this is right, the, the, we, we answer to the Lord, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't this what Daniel did? Yes. So, so in the end, our responsibility is to, is to God, and sometimes that's going to put us offside with the culture in which we live. I think our prayer, 1 Timothy 2, is to live quiet lives, peaceful, mm-hmm. Right? At minding our own business, working with our hands. That's the language of the scriptures. Because I don't want to get offside with the government. I want governments that are just and righteous and those sorts of things. But there are times that the government is going to ask us to do things, or our bosses, or our the military, or whatever, are going to ask us and even demand us to do things that are not we, we cannot do, whether it's pinching an, a bit of incense to Caesar and becoming idolaters, or... This is, the, this is the claim, I mean, you can debate this, but there's a claim about, about people who don't want to bake cakes for gay weddings in the States. They, they, they feel, no, wait a minute, you're asking me to give uh, endorsement, at least in their minds, they're giving an endorsement uh, to a sin. And they're like, That's, I, can't, I can't go there. I love you. I, I'll bake you cake in any other circumstance, you know, your birthday, everything, like that, because I'm not endorsing your sin by doing that. Right. But when I have to do it for your wedding... I have to do it. My point is that the, that we have a law that exists above the law that we adhere to. So how does that work out nowadays? Well, before we get there, though, my question is, how often are we bringing up the cases of Rahab and the Hebrew midwives because we want to be Bible smugglers? <laughs> often. <laughs> 
And how often are we no boat those smugglers, <laughs> brother? Right, boats. Right. So how how do we? So what you're asking I, is when we go across a border. Yeah. Okay. So take real life situation. You're driving across the border, and here where we live in Abbotsford, we're on the U.S. border, and so you're driving back from from you know Bellingham, where you've purchased, you know, eight pairs of shoes or whatever it is, and you're coming back across the border. Or a case of wine. Case of wine, whatever mm-hmm. it is that you think is just outside the bounds. And you're like, well, I don't need to... Like, why would I... Ad- so, so I mean, I've seen... When I used to live in Bellingham, I've seen people put in like eight layers of shirts. Mm. Right? Which would have made them really hot. And they got the air conditioning on in the car in the middle of January because they're wearing eight shirts so that they don't know. But they're not going to claim the eight shirts. So you come back across the border, you say, don't claim, don't do it. And then you feel justified. And I'm not saying people would do this, but people then might point to the scriptures and say, see, Rahab. <laughs> so how's that different? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm asking the question, the motivation. So if we're smuggling Bibles, smuggling Bibles across the border is different than smuggling uh, codeine. Right, Jeff? Yeah. <laughs> totally. In what way? So, um, well, I mean, principalize that. That's so, a good yes, point. But yeah. So when so Jeff shared a story in his sermon about how when he was dra- traveling to the U.S. and he took some Tylenol ones with him to give to his father-in-law because his father-in-law wanted them, and uh, but the guy at the border said, uh, "You bringing anything?" And he said, "Yeah, I'm bringing Tylenol ones for my father-in-law." Blah blah blah. And the guy was like, you know, codeine's uh, prescription down here. So essentially what you're doing is bringing in an illegal narcotic that's just like heroin. And Jeff, of course, was surprised. He's not intending to be, uh, to be bringing illegal drugs across or anything. And, and, and the guy, you know, he was kind to Jeff and he didn't have any issues. But, um, but bringing that across, uh, trying to smuggle it across. So if Jeff would have lied about that, that would have been different than saying going into so, for instance, for a story from history, Brother Andrew was a was a missionary who would smuggle Bibles into Soviet countries where they were illegal. So it's different because in the Soviet countries, their their call is the ultimate law is the state. Mm-hmm. You worship you essentially worship the state, and you cannot you cannot worship God. So bringing. Bibles across the border was bringing something that brings God's truth, it brings the gospel, it brings uh, the, the light of Christ to people, whereas bringing codeine across the border in order to give to somebody is, is not bringing the light of the gospel. It's bringing mm-hmm. something that is, that is um, I, don't, I mean, it's just, the, it's the law of the land. You right. can't, you can't bring it in, mm-hmm. but a Bible actually... Which is not, the law of the land is not in opposition to the law of God at that point. Right. It's mm-hmm. the places at which the law of God supersedes and is clear in clear opposition to the law of the land that one would have the yes. permission, and I, again, not just permission, but I would say moral obligation to go with God's law mm-hmm. as opposed to the law of the land. So... This is the challenge. We are we're selfish people, and so ultimately we want to utilize some of these things for our own personal benefits. And so we have to be very careful in thinking about it and realize, okay, well, why why is it? As you, Greg, Greg, you said, like, what is my motivation to do this? Is the law that I am breaking at this point actually a law that stands over against the law of God? And by doing so, am I actually acting morally, yeah. or 
am I just using this as an excuse so that I can have a bigger boat or more t-shirts or more wine that's cheaper or whatever? Right. Right. Because ultimately, by doing that, so if, if, it, if, if it's not a breakage of, of the law of God, if the law of the land and the law of God are actually you know synonymous at that point, to go against the law of the land is to go against the law of God. Hmm. And ultimately, it's, it's to act in independence from Him. Because essentially what you're saying to God is, you can't take care of me in my own country, buying the things there for the prices there. I need to go down to this other place and do this and lie in order to in order to live the good life and it, it's an it's an act of blatant rebellion. Well, the milk to is him. cheaper. And so I I'm just saying I'm just saying look, I, I, this is something I've done. You, Greg, everybody has has done this. We do this frequently. A lot of us. And I'm just saying that for Christians, we are truth tellers. That's that's what we are. It should mark us. And unfortunately, it doesn't. And so what do we do? We, we come to Jesus and we ask, uh, we repent and we seek his forgiveness, right? Daily. Mm. Forgive us our debts as, as we forget those who are debted to us, which is the Lord's Prayer. So we daily make these, make these appeals to God and ask for his forgiveness and certainly for his empowerment by the Spirit to live in a, in a, in a better way going forward. Mm. That's great. Hey, another question. Uh, this one has to do with the topic of hell, and the listener writes in saying that Ezra, in a sermon that he gave on February 20th, mentioned that Jesus warns of hell far more than he talks about heaven. And then the listener asks, um, because they're aware of a lot of churches and, and teachers and preachers who, who are denying the existence of hell by arguing that the Bible doesn't talk about it, how do we respond? What What are some scriptures that talk about hell? Uh, how can we prove that it is an important doctrine? So Ezra's saying Jesus talks about it. This listener's experience is that they, they know churches and pastors and teachers who are denying its existence. How do we move forward and engage with people who would say that hell as we know it is a fabrication or is a unfair leap from the biblical data. So maybe we'll just start by giving some texts that seem to speak in relatively clear terms about about hell. A uh, couple of you guys might want to grab the couple of ones out of Revelation here. Revelation 14 being one, and I think Revelation 20, 21, I've, something. But I, I here's Mark 9. You, you want to start with that? I've got Matthew 25. Where you go. But no, well, I'll, let me do Mark 9. Okay, and you, you do Mark 9. 20. Okay, okay, here's one. Whoever causes one of these little ones, Jesus speaking here, whoever causes one of these little ones to who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown in the sea. Notice that it would be better to be thrown into the sea. So in order for you to, to, to die in the present world, right? Okay, yeah. is a better yes. situation than... than, than uh, What's going to happen to you if you cause one of these little ones to sin? Mm-hmm. So, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled and with two hands and go to hell, or the Greek word there, Gehenna, to the unquenchable fire. So, it gives a description now mm-hmm. of what that Gehenna is. Yep. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into Gehenna, to hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you, better for you 
to enter the kingdom of God with one eye, then with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Okay, so hell is where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but the salt has lost its saltiness. How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And you get some descriptions of what hell's like here. It's unquenchable fire. Mm-hmm. We can debate about whether that's a metaphor or a literal fire or whatever. I don't, I'm, that doesn't matter to me. The fact that it it's not quenched, the fact that somebody who goes there, it's worse for them than it would be for them to die at the bottom of a sea with a millstone around their neck. The context here seems to indicate that there's some kind of eternal, long-lasting, anyway, thing, bad thing that happens to someone that makes being crippled or blind or whatever a preferable option than going there. Right. So the argument of people who are saying that, so they would say, oh, this Gehenna, this was just a place, it was a dump outside of Israel where people would throw their trash and things that they don't need anymore. Uh, and they would say, Jesus is just saying, he's just, he's saying that's the worst it could get is to be thrown into that place. But I, like you just said, when you look at it in the whole context of the passage, uh, being thrown into, you know, he's saying it would be better to be thrown into the lake, into the ocean with a millstone around your neck. So what would be, oh, sorry, if, from a physical perspective, why is, why would that be better? If if right. if Gehenna is just the physical right. um, place on Earth, right, doesn't make any sense. Doesn't at all. The, the the other thing that should be noted here is that that whole garbage dump outside of Jerusalem thing, that comes from a 12th century rabbi. We're not entirely sure whether or not that was actually what was going on during the first century. So mm-hmm. that's I mean because we don't have a lot of that reference. The the language, it was a Valley of Hinnom and it was where they used to do child sacrifices. That's the more, that, that's the better historical background to what it was. Mm-hmm. Jesus sure seems to be drawing on that image, right? Yeah. Uh, that somebody gets slaughtered there in a, in an everlasting sense. Although there are those who are, who, who will say, well, but yeah, it's not, it's, it's not the, the fire isn't quenched, but the people in the fire are, right? Again, though, why would it be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and go to the bottom of the sea than to go there, if that's the case? So you've got some problems there. There seems to be an everlasting sense of judgment, whatever that judgment, fire, whatever. It's really bad, and it's everlasting sense. Matthew 25 actually gives more indication of that everlasting sense. Right. So when you read Matthew 25 and you go to uh, starting in verse 31 through to the end of verse 46, um, he, he's talking about separating the ones, the sheep from the goats, those on his right being the sheep, those on his left being the goats. And he, and he says in verse 41, he says, then he says to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So if, this, if there's this eternal fire where, uh, that, that's prepared for the devil and his angels, and those who haven't followed Christ, those who haven't put their faith in him, are cast into that eternal fire, this isn't something that's just temporary on earth. This is something that is eternal mm-hmm. and that will last. Right. And the language at the end of that passage is interesting because we try to figure out well, what does eternal mean there are those who are going to argue it's of the ages which is in Greek can it can, can function that way right so 
does that does that mean you know a qualitatively better life? It's just it's a fire anyway, really bad fire, as opposed to or a really great if you talk about eternal life, a really great life, or is it talking about a duration of time? And so you get to the end of that chapter, um, and truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says in verse uh, forty-five of Matthew twenty-five, truly, I say to you as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Verse 46, and these, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Mm. Like, I have no other way to read that but recognize that whatever you're going to say about the life Mm. is what you have to say about the punishment. It's the same adjective. So the way way language works is that in that kind of near context, we mean the same thing by the by the, by the by the the mirroring of the adjective with that noun. Do you, do you understand what I mean by that? Like, yep. if eternal has something to do with punishment, it also has something to do with life, and it's the same thing. Which means you and I, I don't know anybody who right. would say, "Hey, yeah, after he died, Jesus promises eternal life, and that means a long time." Right. So if that's the case, then you also have to say, "Well, he's also talking about a long time mm. of conscious bad bad something." Mm-hmm. For the person who is being judged, yeah. So you get this language. It's interesting that you use that language of the devil and the angels because that's that's in Revelation. Mm. That's that's where he gets it. Do you have that text, Revelation? I had tw- I have twenty in front of me. That's fine. Um, Revelation fourteen works as well. Right. So Revelation twenty is talking about the the book of life and those who um, whose names were not written in the book were thrown into the lake of fire. It's the second death. Anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And earlier was talking about the how this was an ongoing thing, but that's not the text you were thinking of. You were thinking of 14. Yeah, I, Revelation 20 is interesting because it talks about how it was prepared for the devil and his angels, mm. right? So here's this fire, devil and angels, and it sure seems to be the same fire that's being spoken about in Matthew 25. And then you get to Revelation 14, Verse 9, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So... you. It's difficult to get around these texts. Hmm. You have to play, uh, you really do have to play exegetical gymnastics to do this. Or just flatly say, well, that just doesn't make any sense or isn't kind or isn't whatever to say it. But, but to claim that the Bible would not, does not speak of this hmm. in clear terms is just not true. It, hmm. it does. And I think some, some people who uh, will try to dodge the issue... By making the whole, uh, you know, there is no word for hell in Greek. It's Gehenna, and it means this, and it means that. Or, I, I think they're they're missing the forest for the trees, because they'll they they don't look at the language of judgment or the other images that get brought up besides just Gehenna. So they're they're trying to attack the doctrine by attacking the term. Right. Rather than dealing with the content of what the term is trying to represent. Yeah. And you, you have to understand at that point, once you establish, as I think we have, and there are lots more texts and arguments that could be placed here, both philosophical and, and biblical, 
I you're left with the fact that hell exists, that it was it was prepared for the devil and his angels, and that people will actually be there as well. And that that is like terrifying mm. to me, to you, not just mm. on a personal level, but for my friends. Mm. And so it's that crisis in, in our hearts and minds, a good, loving God sending somebody to hell that we feel we have to get out of. And, and so as a result, we want, to, we want to fiddle with the nature of hell, and we just want to say, well, it, it doesn't exist, therefore God's only loving. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to fiddle with some of the things that the Bible says about God sending someone there. We don't like that language, and yet I, and he's tormented in the presence of the Lamb, it says in Revelation mm-hmm. 14. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it sounds like God is actually judging it's not, it's not just people judging themselves, although there's a sense in which some of that happens. The Lord hands over people a judgment, Romans 1. But we want to, so we want to get out from underneath that feeling. And I, I get, you have to understand, I totally appreciate all of those desires because I feel the same thing everybody else feels. I just, I, I don't want to lie about what the Bible says at this point. And so what, what are we left with? We're left with a doctrine that doesn't sit all that easily in our gut, but it probably doesn't sit easily in our gut because one, we don't recognize how holy God is, and two, we don't recognize how sinful we are, and three, we don't realize what what in God's economy that gap between His holiness and our sinfulness actually demands justice-wise. Mm. So, and the question that the Bible actually is dealing with, most of the New Testament is dealing with, is not is God loving. It's actually is God just. Like everyone assumes, my point there is that everyone assumes the New Testament writers assume that God is holy and high and lifted up. He is they, that He is He is magnificent, and we're not. And so it's trying to deal with the question: What do we do when God is so great and we are so not? Like, is there any way for this great God to dwell with with a, such a sinful people? And so the answers that you get in places like Romans and and other places are dealing with that question. That's not really the question that we we deal with today. Our question today is more, yeah, but is God loving? Because we think of ourselves as being really good people, which is so funny to me. Because seriously, the Pharisees were way better than us at every point. Mm. Right. But but we think of ourselves as being really good people, deserving of a really good God. I mean, the maybe I don't know. Is that effect of the self esteem movement? Is that effect of just individualism as a whole? But we we think of ourselves being wonderful, and it's really unfair for God to do to judge us for these things, because if anything, we're the victims. And yeah, there might be some truth in the fact that we might be victims at this point or that, and I don't deny that, but we're also complicit. Like, we're complicit with breaking mm-hmm. God's world, and what, is, what does that mean? So a lot of this, the, we make sense of God, or of, of the doctrine of hell, in a wider framework of theology that recognizes the greatness of God that recognizes the sinfulness of humanity. Do you see what I mean saying? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, if, if you separate the doctrine of hell from all of these other theological ideas with that the Bible states, it looks weird. Mm. But if you place it back within the framework that the scriptures have for who God is, who we are, what justice demands, all that kind of stuff, it slots in like a puzzle piece. And you're like, oh, yes, mm. I see. Mm. So some churches don't want to do that. They don't want to slot it back in, and as a result, because it's tied to these other doctrines, they end up doing something weird to who God is, and certainly something weird to what we're like, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. 
Mm. And that's where, that's where the problem comes in. And so how do you, the question ultimately is how, that was asked to us was how do you minister to people, you know, even personally mm. who are rejecting this, this doctrine? Any, any thoughts? Well, I think if they're people, like if, if they're loved ones of yours, so someone who is maybe a, a part of your family or a, a, a neighbor, somebody, a coworker who you have a good relationship with, and you're having a discussion, I mean, uh, you don't have to fight over it. You can, but you can just open up the scriptures and you can come to these passages and say, and look at this, like mm-hmm. is, is the scripture, so if this is another Christian that you're dealing with, are the are the scriptures um, the authority over our lives, and are is this are the scriptures true in everything mm-hmm. that they say? And if they are, then we have to look and go. It says this. So what are we going to do with that? Are we just going to ignore it? Are we going to try to twist it, or are we going to actually take God at His word? Mm-hmm. I think we need to identify too with with the challenge. Something I don't often like. Uh, that I that I hear in me and others is that sometimes we are trying so hard to defend the orthodox position on this um, that we don't recognize the the gut feeling that we all have mm-hmm. over this. Right. So I I often want to say, yeah, you know what? I get I get what you're saying. I understand. Like it's a genuine it's a genuine question. Yeah, it's one that point. I feel I feel. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think we need to do, though, and the reason I brought up the wider framework, right, is I think that in order to address questions like this, we need to, it's not just about the question or the text that deal with that particular issue. It's about the wider framework of who God is and and how He's revealed in Scripture. Mm -hmm. And so, taken as a whole, the Bible has a certain flavor to it, and or it's a certain kind of puzzle, and this piece fits as part of that greater puzzle. But if you don't have that greater puzzle, you'll always think it's weird. Mm -hmm. Likewise, I mean, I'd say this about God's sexual ethics and everything else. If you don't, if you want to just look at each text individually, there's a way for you to argue around each little passage or whatever. They're not, they're not good. They don't, they're not exegetically satisfying to me to say, oh, this passage that deals with same sex, this or that is wrong, and or we've always interpreted it wrong. It fits within a wider framework of what God has been doing in the entire Bible, the way that he has made people as male and female. Like, there's a whole right. gamut. It's within his, the marriage, and right? Which is a picture of what the marriage supper between the lamb and the... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, so you, it's, there's this whole bigger picture that it fits within. Mm. Uh, and so I think that we need to do better at helping our friends and neighbors understand the whole of the Bible. It's one of the reasons why we teach a theology class on Thursday mornings, because we want to put all of those pieces in people's minds, and there might be little gaps or fuzzy parts, parts of the puzzle that we can't quite, you know, figure out how that piece kind of fits exactly, but for the most part, there is a pretty discernible puzzle that fits together in what the scriptures are teaching. Yeah, there's actually a couple of, uh, like, if you want to look at the scriptures as God's grand story of (laughs) redemption and what he's been doing throughout all of history, there's actually a couple of, of good kids' Bibles that even for grown-ups to read are good, because it, it gives a good summary. So, like, um, there's one called God's Big Picture Story Bible mm. uh, by a guy named David Helm, which is really good. And then another one is the Jesus Storybook Bible, mm-hmm. which shows how Jesus is the... Uh, how the, all the scriptures from beginning to end point to Jesus and, and the need for Him. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, teach the. I mean, I, I, I'm totally espousing teaching theology and learning it first for yourself, mm-hmm. and then it, I think that would help you 
communicate yep. and interact with your friends and neighbors, mm-hmm. right? Because we're trying to understand why it is that people are abandoning that particular doctrine, and I'm trying to say it's not just that doctrine they're abandoning. Right. Mm-hmm. It's tied to lots of other things that mm-hmm. they're abandoning. And mm-hmm. the, to, re, to reconfigure that doctrine means to do more work than just you know, rebuilding that room in your house. There's a whole foundation that needs to be redone here. You right. ever had that? You know, you go and you do a re, re, uh, renovation project, and they end up saying, well, actually, the reason this room fell into the ground is because the foundation underneath it's rubbish, so we're going to have to rip your whole house down. Sorry. Right. And then you end up rebuilding, and but the one you've got afterwards, you're thankful for. It's hard in the process. It really is, because you want to do the cheap thing and try to fix that one room, but theology is not like that. Sometimes you're, you just have to f- flat admit, okay, so my whole theological paradigm stinks. So let's go back to the scriptures and reestablish some of the basics, mm. the fundamentals, so that we can build from that foundation up. And then you'll find three, four years down the track that you you actually have a theological framework that makes sense of the Bible. Mm. So I think Spurgeon used to say, he used to hold his Bible up, and he said that people ask him, what kind of theology do you, do you have? He said, I, I want to have a kind of theology where I can open up to any page in this book, Bible, can open up to any page in this book and not be ashamed. And I think that's, yeah, you shouldn't feel like you have to hide the Bible away. Mm-hmm. So if you weren't able to make it to Thursday Theology, what's some some ways that people can engage in this process? Yeah, this of... is what we do. I think a lot with our TLC, we're trying to put stuff together with our TLC program next year. We might have some classes that you might be able to take in the middle of the day that are tied to some theological education pieces we're doing here at the church. We're trying to have that. I, I would think that we would want you to get into... Uh, community group, because I think that those those are the sorts of places that you're going to end up discussing stuff like this and learning together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's lots lots of different ways that you that you can do this. Thursday mornings is not that bad, though. Well, and even if you can't make it, Grudem has a really... Um, Grudem is the textbook we use. Do we use it because we agree with everything he writes? No. So why why do we choose Because it's the most accessible systematic theology textbook around. Okay. Accessible meaning like it's understandable. And mm-hmm. when you read it, you're when you read it, it's in it's in regular English and it doesn't use all sorts of weird theological terms that you feel like are way above you. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you are if you're interested in podcasts, Grudem has a really great um, audio version of basically every chapter of his book. So if you're a podcast listener and you haven't found it already, you should listen to his uh, Systematic Theology podcast. You can get it on iTunes, and it's really helpful. Mm. Thanks, Greg. (laughs) Thanks for that suggestion. You guys are welcome. Hey, it's Super Tuesday. We're running out of time here, but it's a big day for your brethren down yonder. Yeah, yeah. The trumpeting is happening. That's right. Yeah. So what do you think he's going to win the Super Tuesday? I think he's... I've actually been in prayer lately mm. about it, and I'm, I mean, I don't mind saying that I'm, it, it deeply troubles me much of what he stands for and says, mm-hmm. and I, I don't actually know what it is that he stands for and says, and I think it's, uh, it's really an indictment on, the, on a lot of self-proclaimed Christians that they are all for him. Mm. Um, there tends to be uncritical, and I think it's an exposure of the idolatry of the politics among church people in the states that we actually think that God, the, the way to bring God's kingdom is to get the right president. And the right president isn't always going to be the one who believes all the stuff I believe, but he's going to be the straight talking, not, you know, wall building, Muslim hating 
Trump. <laughs> and I, 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 yeah, it's actually sickening to me. Mm. So, yeah, I have a vote. And I'm in great distress because I don't love any of the <laughs> candidates. But that's not the first time. Mm. But at the end of the day, right, and people are going to end up making their choices based upon their convictions, and they'll go their way, and God is on his throne. And he hasn't vacated it, and there are things that the church will learn and grow through, mm. regardless of who it, who it is that's, you know, and just because the Republican nominee is not the guy that I might like, it doesn't mean that, you know the Lord is, his arm is short. Mm. He will use all of these things for his glory and for the good of his people. I'm sure of it. Mm. But it's just hard sometimes when you watch it and go, Ugh. anyway, so I'm not a big fan. You're a big fan, Paul. You're a bit of a U.S. politics guy. You like the follow the U.S. politics <laughs> guy. Well, I like to, I listen to, um, a few times a week, usually I listen to a podcast uh, by a guy named Albert Moeller. Um, like, oh, what's the title of it? The briefing. The brief. Thank you. The briefing. The brief. And the briefs. W- when you when and Moeller always. I mean, every day he talks about the headlines. What's going on? And so he's talking a lot. The um, U.S. headlines. Yeah. Yeah, in the U.S. in particular. Sometimes Canadian stuff comes up when it has to do with religious liberty and things, mm. but usually it's. I mean, vast majority of the time it's American things, and uh, he. So he's been bringing up the fact that over the last couple of days, the fact that. Uh, when we talk about when the media brings up the fact that evangelicals are the ones mm-hmm. voting for Donald Trump and he's winning the evangelical vote. Oh, that's a loose term. Uh, yes. This, so this word evangelical does not mean kind of what it traditionally has meant. No. And it's 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 gotten to be this point where it's the same as just saying like Protestant. So you've got this you've got this wide range of people within that. So people that are just identifying it because, so I live in Mississippi, therefore I'm evangelical. And and they don't look at their lifestyle, they don't read the Bible, they don't go to church, they don't pray, but yet I'm evangelical and uh, therefore... Yeah, it makes you I'm almost want to Donald Trump. It makes you almost want to abandon the term, to be honest with you. Yeah, as you know, people have asked me before you evangelical. I always want to say, well, what do you mean, like politically or doctrinally, or as if there is a doctrinal center to right. evangelicalism. Like I don't, I, I don't know how to even use that term. It's mm-hmm. funny you use the word Protestant. There's a guy named David Wells years ago who wrote a book called The Courage to Be Protestant. And he argued in the book, we just need to use the word Protestant now because it's probably more clarifying <laughs> than evangelical even, mm-hmm. which is funny because historically mm-hmm. evangelical is a subset of the Protestants. Right. But nowadays, to, for me to say I'm a Protestant is is actually to clarify me as being distinct from this political group that's trying to save the world through the right president. Yeah, fair enough. Which, by the way, is not a, you know, vote for a good president, you know, in the States. Vote for parties in Canada that are, you know, that that are going to represent what you believe to be the values of Scripture. And that's great. Mm-hmm. And we have a responsibility to for the good of our community and the common good to do all that kind of thing. I just, uh, sometimes my heart hurts a bit for my country. For sure. And for what's happening there, and believe me, I've I've received my fair share of mockery over over Trump being mockery. And, um, yeah, oh yeah, I've had a lot of good Canadians. Just because oh, sure just because you're know. Canadian or just because you're American. Yeah, let me know what they think of uh, the U.S. having him as like they just can't believe. Which of course I'm I I keep wondering what what how. But you know what, like. Because all our politicians are so good up here. No, I, it's our friend. Our, one of our friends recently said it to me this way. He said, "You know, you have a cell phone that ends up breaking, and you try four or five different things, and then finally, you're like, oh, I'm, I, I, 
and you just slam it against the table. That's the Trump move, right? Mm-hmm. That's the that's the picture of what what people are doing in the U.S. in voting for Trump. They're just you know what? Maybe if we just hit it really hard, we'll vote for someone who can hit it really hard, mm. and see if that works. And yeah, what's fear? fear uh, like I was a history major in college, and that's what's a little bit frightening to me is that in the past when people have done that, they have voted for certain people, and I'm not comparing Hunt Trump to to Hitler here. I'm just saying that other people are H- Hitler was elected as a response to a time period where where nothing was working to save the 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 German economy basically and Hitler came along and he's like well I can do it I mean I've got all this other stuff these other policies right. about Jews and stuff but they're the, they're part of the problem so I'm going to set them straight so I mean like when I hear him talk about you know immigration and the Muslims mm-hmm. being the problem I'm like oh man. right no I mean if you could sum very, up Hitler's campaign yeah it would have been make Germany great again yeah. Right. Totally. Yes. It totally would. And that's what's frightening is that don't don't resort to just like you might say to your kids, don't bash it. Right. That's not going to solve the problem. Mm. That's what I want to say to all my friends in the states, my yeah. my my kinsmen. Don't bash it. Mm. Okay. It's not going to help it. Mm. Well, this was a good time. We talked about Trump and hell and lying and the Oscars. <laughs> good uh and poochie and poochie poochie thanks for doing the work again man it was really you did really well appreciate that hey if you have questions you want to have the extra team answer send them to extra at northview.org you can google poochie on the simpsons get a little taste for why we think matt looks like him he's being a good sport um but he has to because he has to sit there quietly and hey, one one other thing. You were, we had baptisms this this past weekend, yeah. and if you were encouraged, and you haven't been baptized yet, but you saw that and you were like, "Yeah, I want to be baptized." Go on our website. We've got baptism classes coming up in April and May, and I think baptisms are going both to be campuses, in, Mission and yeah, Abbotsford. Yeah. We're going to have classes, mm-hmm. and the baptism I think is going to be out in Mission at Camp Luther in mm, June. It is. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, if you were encouraged by that, which I know many people were. I mean, we had tons of people here on the weekend. It was awesome. Uh, do that. Yeah. Let's do that. It's good. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs>